Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or follow the link under the contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up. Really. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. Thanks to Gerhardus, Jay, and Kira for their recent contributions. I hope I got the pronunciation of that first name somewhat correct. Alright, let's get right on to today's show, the last episode in our series on the evolution of English grammar words. As a general rule of linguistics, pronouns tend to be a conservative category of words. What that means is that they tend to resist change over time. This is because pronouns are some of the most basic building blocks of linguistic communication. They're learned at such a young age that they become ingrained into the way that we speak. Across languages, words for numbers, family members, and basic nouns and verbs are also fairly resistant to change based on this same principle. Now, if the overall pronunciation of a language drifts over time, then sure, the pronunciations of its pronouns will follow in suit, but in general, languages don't just throw their long-standing pronouns out the window and replace them with new ones. However, if you listen to the episode on the word the, which I released a few weeks back, you may recall that English has in fact thrown out at least one of its pronouns in favor of a brand new one. In that episode, we learned that before English had the pronoun she, it had the pronoun hail, which referred to both women and grammatically feminine nouns. This was relevant to our discussion of the definite article, the, because some linguists have proposed that the word she derives from the feminine inflection of the Old English definite article. For those who don't know, the word inflection refers to all of the grammatical forms of a single word. It's a technical term that'll be popping up a lot in this episode, so if that's a new one for you, take note of it now. Anyway, the emergence and ultimate success of the pronoun she shows that English broke this general rule of pronoun conservatism. But all rules are allowed an exception, right? Of course. But English didn't just break this rule once. It broke it twice. Clearly, English doesn't represent this general rule very well, and that's one of the things that makes today's show so interesting, in my opinion. The second modern English pronoun to break this rule of conservatism is they, and that's the main topic of today's show. Like she, they is a relatively new kid on the pronoun block. It's actually the newest kid on the pronoun block. It's also the most unlikely kid on the pronoun block. You see, 
even though we're not 100% sure what the etymology of she may be, we are sure that it emerged from the Old English lexicon, not from outside of it. Even though she isn't one of the original English pronouns, it's still a genetically English word through and through. However, the word they is a foreign import. Our modern English third-person plural pronoun was actually borrowed into the language from Old Norse. Before we look at the etymology of they, I want to look at the etymology of the word it replaced. That word is hie. Hie was the original Old English third-person plural pronoun. If you're sharp, you may have noticed that hie sounds a lot like heyo, which was the original third-person feminine pronoun. Furthermore, both hie and heyo sound a lot like he, the modern English third-person masculine pronoun. So what's going on here? In Old English, the third-person pronouns were originally all inflections of a single base word. The masculine inflection was he, which has survived into modern English as he. As already stated, the feminine inflection of he was heyo. The gender-neutral, or neuter, inflection of he was hit. By the Middle English period, the initial H sound of hit had begun to erode, producing the word it, which of course is the form of the word we use today. This not only means that he and it are cognates, but it also means that they're technically variations of a single base word. Last but not least, the plural third-person pronoun for all three grammatical genders was hie. While we're on this topic, I might as well mention that the original Old English feminine pronoun has actually survived into modern English in the object pronoun her. Its initial H sound is a dead giveaway that it belongs to this linguistic family. If we trace these pronouns back to Proto-Germanic, that is, the prehistoric mother tongue of all the Germanic languages, including English, we find that they all derive from the word his, which meant this. We can trace the lineage of his even further back in time to the Proto-Indo-European word ke, which also meant this. So, in simultaneously more technical and more blatant terms, the original Old English pronouns evolved as variations of a prehistoric demonstrative adjective. Demonstrative adjectives are words like this, that, these, and those that describe the specificity of the thing or things we're talking about. The close semantic and grammatical relationship between demonstrative adjectives and third-person pronouns is going to pop up again in our story later on. I've given you some background on all of the original Old English third-person pronouns because I want to give you a sense of just how closely related these pronouns actually were at the onset of the language. They had a strong genetic identity that should have made them resistant to change, especially given the general rule of pronoun conservatism that we've already discussed. However, that's just not how the story of English pronouns played out. Enter the Vikings. Scandinavian Vikings first raided the Anglo-Saxon settlements on the British Isles in 793, and attacks like this continued for the remainder of the 8th century. Eventually, these loot and plunder raids turned into full-scale invasions, and by the 860s, the Vikings had actually managed to conquer a large portion of the island. 
The Viking kingdom on British soil was known as the Danelaw, and it lasted for about 200 years. The reason that any of this matters to our story today is because these Vikings spoke Old Norse, and they is originally an Old Norse word. About Old Norse. Like Old English, Old Norse was a Germanic language, and this shared linguistic heritage between the two languages meant that they had a lot in common. In fact, they had so much in common that people within the Danelaw region actually began speaking a hybrid of Old Norse and Old English. You could think of this language as a dialect of Old English with Old Norse pronunciations, loanwords, and grammatical conventions thrown into the mix. Unsurprisingly, the usage of they in English, which is an anglicization of the Old Norse pronoun there, first emerged within the Danelaw. The Danelaw was dissolved after the Norman French invaded Britain in 1066, but the linguistic influence of Old Norse within the region lived on. Some of these Norse influences spread beyond the Danelaw and into the English language at large. Obviously, the success of they all the way into the modern era, nearly a thousand years later, is a testament of this. Even though we've just established a historical framework for our narrative, we have to go back in time again before we can move forward because the origin of the word they is much older than Old Norse. If you listen to the episode on the word the, then you'll already be familiar with some of the points we're about to discuss. Surprise, surprise, the words the and they are ultimately cognates, but through different lineages of descent. These different lineages will become clear in the following discussion. Both words ultimately derive from inflections of the Proto-Indo-European demonstrative adjective so, which meant this. You may recall that the Old English third-person pronouns also derived from a Proto-Indo-European demonstrative adjective that meant this, but that was a completely different demonstrative adjective, so don't let that confuse you. The two words are etymologically unrelated. Now, the word so doesn't sound very much like they or the for that matter, but I didn't say that they or the derive from so itself. I said that they derive from inflections of so. Even at the earliest stage of linguistic history, the Proto-Indo-European demonstrative adjective so was irregularly inflected. Aside from the masculine nominative and feminine nominative inflections, all of so's grammatical inflections began with a T sound. These inflections were borrowed from another root word pronounced toad, which was yet another demonstrative adjective. This is an example of suppletion, which, as some of you may recall from the episode on to be, refers to words whose grammatical forms derive from etymologically distinct sources. When so passed into Proto-Germanic, its pronunciation shifted to sa. The Proto-Germanic word sa had retained the irregular inflections of the Proto-Indo-European so, though the pronunciation of those inflections had changed a bit. Whereas in Proto-Indo-European, those inflections were pronounced with an initial T sound, now in Proto-Germanic, they were being pronounced with an initial TH sound. When Proto-Germanic splintered off into its various daughter languages, each of them inherited their own etymological descendant of Sa, and each of these descendants underwent their own evolutions. In Old English, Sa became the word Se, 
And the modern English definite article, the, is derived from one of its irregular inflections beginning with that th sound. In Old Norse, the pronunciation of sa basically remained the same. Like its Old English cognate say, sa also became a definite article, but only in some circumstances. Old Norse actually developed a suffix that was used to indicate grammatical definiteness as well, but that's a tangent unrelated to our story. Even though sa had become a definite article in Old Norse, it simultaneously remained a demonstrative adjective as well. In Old Norse, the line between demonstrative adjectives and definite articles was often blurred. The same can actually be said of Old English. But in addition to these developments, the Old Norse sa had developed another function. What I really should say is that the inflections of the Old Norse sa developed another function. At some point before the written record, Old Norse adapted the neuter and plural declensions of sa as the declensions for its neuter and plural third-person pronouns. The word declension simply means all of the grammatical variations of a word. If this technical jargon isn't your thing, think of the situation like this. Old Norse took its words for this and these and used them as the words for it and they. I'm not going to give you the full declensions of these Old Norse neuter and plural pronouns because A, it's a cumbersome task in podcasting format without the help of a chart, and B, the only one that really impacts our story is the plural masculine. In its nominative form, the Old Norse plural masculine third-person pronoun was deir, as I've already mentioned. This, of course, was also the plural masculine inflection of the demonstrative adjective sa. Okay, now with that etymological background, let's get back to the historical narrative. By the early 1200s, which historically fits into the early Middle English period, the anglicized version of this plural third-person masculine pronoun first appears in the English written record. Of course, the modern English pronoun they is the plural of he, she, and it alike, but it started off as just the plural of he. At this point, the original Old English third-person masculine pronoun hie was still being used in some parts of England, but by the 1400s, they had become ubiquitous throughout the entire country, with a variety of pronunciations including thy, thee, the, and theye. Also by this point, it had begun to be used as the plural form of both she and it. Now, the timing of the emergence of they in English is a little interesting because shortly after the Norman-French conquest of England in 1066, the Danelaw, which again was that Norse-influenced region of England, had ceased to exist. You would think that the adaptation of this new pronoun would have happened during the Danelaw period and not after it, right? Well, in spite of what the written record may tell us, it probably did. When we reference the English written record, we have to keep in mind that it is indeed just a written record. It doesn't tell us everything about the development of the language because everything didn't get written down, especially in the centuries before the internet, before the printing press, and before mass literacy. Furthermore, the written record only comprises texts that have survived. The amount of literature that we've lost from antiquity greatly outnumbers the amount that has survived. 
The point is that people within the Dane law were probably using the pronoun they in everyday speech long before it was actually written down in any surviving text. In spite of all these details that I've bombarded you with thus far, I still haven't addressed what's probably the most important question of this whole episode. Why did English speakers feel the need to adapt a new third-person plural pronoun from Old Norse? What was wrong with the good old-fashioned he? The reason for the adoption of they as a plural pronoun was probably due to the sound changes that English was undergoing at the end of the Old English period and the beginning of the Middle English period. The famed linguist Otto Jepperson suggests that the pronunciation of the original Old English singular and plural third-person pronouns had become so similar that they was adopted as a way of distinguishing between the grammatical forms. Speaking of grammatical forms, English not only borrowed they as the third-person plural subject pronoun, but also its inflections them and theirs, which are the object and possessive forms of the pronoun respectively. As you'd assume, the previous object and possessive forms of the plural third-person pronoun were inflections of the original base word he, and they no longer exist. Before we end today's episode, I want to talk about the singular epicene usage of they. Epicene is just a fancy way of saying gender neutral. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you will in a second. Consider the following sentences. 1. I can't see who's behind that mask, but they sure look scary. 2. When you find the owner of this lost umbrella, can you give it back to them, please? 3. I didn't break that vase. Whoever did it, it's their problem. Okay, so in these sentences, they, them, and their all refer to a singular person whose gender is unspecified. They don't refer to multiple people. The example sentences that I just read could be reconfigured in the following way, and their meanings would be exactly the same. Here they are again. 1. I can't see who's behind that mask, but he or she sure looks scary. 2. When you find the owner of this lost umbrella, can you give it back to him or her, please? 3. I didn't break that vase. Whoever did it, it's his or her problem. Saying he or she or him or her just takes so long. Why use three words when one word works just fine? Well, there definitely are some English pedants out there who object to the singular usage of they. They claim that it's too colloquial or grammatically incorrect to be used in any formal context, but the reality is that the singular they has been a common part of our language for a long, long time. The earliest usage of the singular gender-neutral they dates all the way back to the 14th century. That's just one century after the brand new pronoun they was adapted, period. Chaucer used the gender-neutral they, Wycliffe used the gender-neutral they, Caxton used the gender-neutral they, and all of these writers are considered to be the greats of Middle English. It wasn't until the emergence of stuffy neoclassical Latin-obsessed grammarians in the 18th century that anyone began complaining about the singular epicene usage of they. As I've mentioned on this podcast before, those stuffy neoclassical Latin-obsessed grammarians have greatly impacted what we think of as good and bad grammar even to this day, so for no real good reason, a lot of people still complain about the singular epicene they. 
I myself think it's a perfectly valid way of using they, but you can decide on this for yourself. The singular episteme they has also become an important pronoun for individuals in the transgender community who don't fully identify as a he or a she. Hopefully I'm not ruffling anyone's feathers by bringing this up. From a pronomial perspective, the singular episteme they is a perfect way of referring to someone whose gender identity fluctuates between he or she without calling them he or she. I wonder how those old Norse-speaking Vikings would feel knowing how important their contribution of the pronoun they to the English language has been for the transgender community. Alright, that's it for this one. I hope you loved it. On to a new series next time. Again, if you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. If that's not in your budget, no problem. You can still show your support by leaving a positive review on iTunes or your podcast directory of choice. Those positive reviews really make a huge difference for search engine optimization, and they always help the show grow. If you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. I'll talk to you all soon. Have a great day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.